Hey, I'm Lika Sumba, and this is our journey across Africa, navigating the intricate landscapes of business, culture, and global influence from the African perspective. Africa Whisperer, telling authentic African stories in a global way. On this episode of the Africa Whisperer. The way in which art is packaged on our, on our continent is not packaged the same way. In other words, it's seen as jokes. It's not seen as a business. And I think that's also deliberate because you start to see it sometimes when you're trying to apply for funding for films, especially from foreign donors. There's certain films they're not funding. They're like, no, we're not going to give you money for this other thing, but we'll give you money for this sort of, you know, health awareness type of... So so you start to see, like, there's a pattern in, in the thing. But thankfully, art always just, you know, it, it, it takes over. So I, I, I still hope for the day when parents, um, African parents in particular, can be more supportive of their children. What I love and respect about Akino Motoso's work is that he's intentional about his art. He's not chasing trends. He's simply pursuing telling stories that perhaps otherwise would not have been told. And even with all his accomplishments as a globally celebrated director and actor, Akin stays humble and stays hungry. He's almost like an eternal student ready to work his craft each and every time. Perhaps this is where his genius lies, in his focus and ability to pursue purpose, irrespective of the personal cost. But it has certainly all paid off. But what I do know from this conversation, hearing Akin's mindset, and also from the extraordinary work that he has been doing, that this is only the beginning. I'm really just so glad to be able to have this conversation with you. You know, obviously I've known you for a bit, just being in the same circles (laughs) and us both having been in South Africa for a while. I don't know if you still live there. I'm not. Um, but yeah, I'm just, I'm just so amazed at your journey and how far you've come, honestly speaking. So such an honor to be able to talk to you. Thank you so much. And likewise, you know, I see you going from strength to strength. And, and as you say, you know, we, we came up together, as it were. I remember inviting you and a bunch of people to, and I don't know whose house it was, many years ago, probably like 2000, to look at an early cut of God is African, my first film. So that's how far we go. Do you remember that? I remember that. I remember. And then I was like, I was very awkward back then because I was so scared of everybody. So I just used to show up and be like, yeah, I'll be here. I was scared. I was lying to my Ugandan dad about what I was really doing. He thought I was studying. Oh, my life was complicated. <laughs> but we made it. We made it. Yes, yes, you did. Yes, you did. So it's it's really great to talk to you. And uh, just remembering, like I remembering that evening and just like, yeah. Wow, what a journey. <laughs> what a journey, what a journey. You know, Akin, um, just as we get the interview started, I was watching a clip from the Kevin Hart and Jay-Z interview, where Kevin Hart interviewed Jay-Z, and they literally were talking about the fact that did you ever think that these things were going to happen, you know? And as I was preparing to have this conversation with you, I was like, I know that Akin, from the way that you've, you've always been, from what I've known about you um, and knowing you and then now doing research, you've always had focus and a plan. But obviously along the way, it can sometimes be like, oh, is this thing actually going to happen? So as we sit here today with all of the tremendous things that have happened in your career, did you ever think you will get to this point? You know, the thing about it is that you always... Um... It's funny, but with the hip hop, what's the there's the and I'm probably gonna muck up the um the thing. It's you stay ready, so you well, you know what I mean. You gotta stay ready, so you be ready or be ready, so you you know 
You know the one I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so it's like, um, I think that, as you say, I've always been clear about the type of films I wanted to do, and I've always been clear about the type of filmmaker and the path, and that the path was never going to be easy. It was always going to be hard. Nothing is promised, which is what my father told me, and I was like, yep, I, 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 I take that to heart. So nothing is promised. And so I always felt like, if I just stay true to the craft and, you know, as you know, I play basketball. So basketball, you always practicing, you got to keep on shooting and do all those things. So I just felt if I just stay true or if I continue to stay true to being a better director, being a better everything in the craft and just own your craft, something will happen. It might not be the thing you want to happen, but something will happen and just stay on that course. Most definitely. Tell, yeah. It's what I always tell my students when I say like, do the work. You just have to do the work and enjoy the work because nothing is promised and the rest will take care of itself. It will either take care of itself in a way that you, you get all your dreams and whatever your dreams are, or you had a good time honing your craft and doing your work. That's how I looked at it. I just felt like just keep getting better, keep getting better and just focus on the craft. I mean, what I love about that statement and just the, the whole, you know, your mindset around it is that I think that when it comes to the creative industry, and the creative sector in, in, you know, specifically in the continent, um, this is maybe a broad generalization, but sometimes there isn't enough of like this idea that, look, guys, it's just about do the work, do the work, do the work. It's a job, you know, but we just yeah. get the opportunity to do something that's super fun. But just because it's fun, it does not mean that it's not a lot of hard work. Because I know for me, sometimes I'm like, wow, this thing, I don't know what I'm doing in this ocean, but here I am. <laughs> You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you know it's hard because it's like everybody thinks, you know, the thing is, they hear you on the radio, they hear you at the show, and because you make it sound so effortless, everybody goes, oh, I can do that. And then, and then you go, no, not really, actually. There's some things. You might have a gift, but you still got to hone the gift. And that's where I think I've always just focused on. I've always wanted to, I never wanted, I was not interested in being like, a flash in the pan. You know what I mean? I wasn't interested in like, oh yeah, the one hit wonder, all those things. I was like, I want to be making films when I'm 80 years old. So what do you have to do? God give us life. And you know what I mean? What do you have to do to keep, to keep on? And then I, I, so I just honed in on just get better, just keep focus on the craft, focus on the stories and the rest will take care of itself. Now, Akin, I want to go back to just your upbringing and you growing up, because up until recently, I, I didn't actually know your full family story and how you ended up living in South Africa, you know, but the, the period that you came to South Africa was so interesting. So it's a year after Nelson Mandela's release, two years before the first elections, so before the new South yes. Africa, so to speak, yeah. Yeah. and then two weeks after the last whites-only referendum. Two weeks before, before the war. I want to understand, like, you're in Nigeria, and obviously at that time, you'd rather be in Nigeria or anywhere else in Africa <laughs> but South Africa, you know? Yeah, exactly. How aware were you growing up in Nigeria? Because by this time you're 17 years old. How aware were you in Nigeria about what was going on in South Africa? And what is your initial reaction and your family reaction to you moving to South Africa at this time period? Yeah, I mean, we knew a lot about South Africa because of the rest of the continent. South Africa was a priority. So you knew, you knew that there was a place that existed that had this evil system from the jump. I mean, my parents had poster of Nelson Mandela on their bedroom door with the, you know, his, the, you know, his famous quote uh, from the speech, uh, it's an ideal I'm prepared to die for. So as a child, you're like, well, who's that guy? And what's he talking about? So from the jump, I was schooled in, in that sense. 
I always had, in fact, some of my friends joke to say, well, it's, they're not surprised we ended up in South Africa because, you know, my parents were very conscious. So we were, we were you know, we always knew. So I remember watching was Albert. I, I used to have all these badges, like sanctions now. And, and also in primary school, <laughs> in primary school, there used to be a play called The Rescue of Fatima. And The Rescue of Fatima was, was about, Fatima is stolen by these Africana soldiers. She's stolen from the village. And then the villagers have to rally and go rescue her. And it was a way in which they taught us about apartheid. So I was, I was up to date on everything that was going on there. So that, so that aside, but when my dad came back and said he had the job at the University of the Western Cape, yeah, I have to be honest, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't exactly jumping for joy. I wasn't the most enthusiastic person. But as time, obviously now, that was the best thing that ever happened to us. In terms of moving. And so we arrive in the country, we arrive in the country and it's two weeks before the whites, last whites on a referendum where de Klerk is asking them, vote yes or no for change. So if it's no, we go back to apartheid. If it's yes, we're moving forward. And I just remember landing and saying to my dad, are you sure these people are going to vote in, in the correct way? He's like, don't worry, they'll vote properly. Akin, I, you know, because this is so fascinating to me. Your, your, this story is a movie on its own. So now you get on a plane. I, I, I just want to know details. Like you get on a plane and you're getting on Nigerian Airlines. How are you getting there? When you get here, what is it looking well, like? Because then it would have been Yasmat Airport. Like what is that exactly. whole and what is the texture and the feeling of, of what it was like to be in South Africa? You must remember, South Africa had been isolated from the rest of the world. So it's not like there's a direct flight to, you know what I mean? It's not like now when you go like, oh yeah, let me jump on the flight. So we had to go through London. You fly to London and then London to Cape Town. And so what I remember is that, um, one, the visas took long. So my dad was sorted because he had a job, but then we were going through London and um, the idea was that we would be in London for like a few days and then go to Cape Town. I think we ended up spending like three weeks in London <laughs> or something like that, right? So already it's like, you know, it's taking long to get to this place. But also at the time, you know, my late mom, rest her soul, is from Barbados. And, you know, my dad is Nigerian. So my early childhood was sort of spent between going to London, where my late grandparents, rest their souls, lived as West Indian immigrants, and then also going to Barbados, and then also Nigeria. So there was a, there was a period of time where, at the time we were leaving Nigeria was the time when I was almost beginning to settle. Like, I could speak the language, you know, boarding school, I was at a military school, that's a whole other thing. So at the time... It, it, it felt for a young 17-year-old boy, this is not the time to be leaving this place. I feel comfortable. Now i got to go somewhere else. And not only do I have to go somewhere else, this country is problematic, and that's being, that's being kind. So, yeah, there was a lot going on. And I remember what I remember is like flying into Cape Town and just looking down and seeing all the swimming pools. Like all the houses had swimming pools. <laughs> you know what I mean? Landing in Cape Town two weeks before this referendum and just taking in this place, you know, and just like people going, you know, where are you from? It's like we're from Nigeria. Where is that? <laughs> you yeah. sound funny. You know, all those things. And then, you know, the way I look at it is like watching a country. I feel like I was witness to the birth of a new country. Coming from a military dictatorship at that time, the idea of voting, you never voted. You wake up in the morning, somebody say, hey, in the last night we took power. I'm your new president. You know what I mean? So the idea that this country, South Africa, was going to have this democratic election, that we stood like voting in 94 was such a thing. Because it's like, wow, really understanding this country and watching it grow. He had a front row seat this moment in time. And I always apologize to my dad for giving him a hard time when we were moving because it turned out to just be amazing. 
Yeah. I mean, I think that speaks so much to purpose. And, and even when you describe your journey as witnessing history and then you consider the fact that you're a filmmaker, it just really makes sense that you would have needed to have been there at that period in time. Absolutely. And then adjusting to a place and then understanding the norms. And I mean, you, you, you would have had a bit of this and like, go, okay, so this is how you do things here. Okay. You know what I mean? And then, and then a new identity starts to evolve, but you're, you're lockstep. With, and, and I think that's what a lot of what God is asking was trying to, was trying to talk about, was trying to capture this idea of these two Nigerian students at a university, each battling with different things. The one totally wants nothing to do with Nigeria, and the other one is trying to remind everybody that, yes, you're free now, but we've got some other problems. And in this case, it was the, the execution of Ken Sarawi, the rights and the activists, who's someone we knew personally, but who, whose tragic execution was also a wake-up call for late President Mandela in terms of welcome back to the world stage and what it means. So Nelson Mandela's first appearance at the Commonwealth, he has to expel Nigeria, a country that has been very instrumental in helping to bring down apartheid, but he has to expel them because the dictator has murdered an activist. So someone knowing that context of growing up in a country and then coming to a new country and hearing Nigeria has been banned from the Commonwealth. You know, God is African was really about, you know, Hakim K. Kazim and Sami Sabiti played in that film. They played two parts of my persona. The one part was embracing South Africa, and the other part was like, don't forget Nigeria and trying to understand it. Sure. That's so complex. I mean, I even wonder sometimes when I think of, of my, you know, just us moving to South Africa and so forth. But what I find so interesting is that, you know, your dad going in as uh, getting a job at UWC, UWC. right? Um, yeah. And then also a lot of the Ugandan community, for example, that had moved to Uganda, they went in, they were either, in my case, my dad was finishing off studying medicine and then becoming mm -hmm. a doctor and so forth. And a lot of people who came from other African countries kind of came into South Africa in a privileged way. And it's something that yes. never really clicked in my mind because for the average uh, black South African, they did not have the privilege and the opportunity at that particular time because they had not had yeah. the access to become lecturers or professors or to be in medicine. So from that perspective, I guess, you know, for me, I remember growing up really in a Ugandan community the whole time. It was crazy. Like I grew up in a Ugandan community. We were kneeling, yeah. eating matoke, the, the, the works. For you, um, <laughs> integrating, and obviously once you get there and your dad is, is lecturing at this university, you obviously come in privileged. Your skin may be the same color as a black South African, but you're more privileged. How did you navigate that? And what were, what were your friend circles like? What, what was that like for you? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that when we arrived, there weren't that many, do you know what I mean? Like we were, I'm trying to think even another Nigerian, never mind, do you know what I mean? So I think we were kind of, it was just us <laughs> at that time. And I guess, like, my memories are more, like, adjusting. It's really the minutiae. You know, my parents sort of brought us up, and, and, and I take, you know, in the sort of middle class, you know, academic, you know, my dad's a writer, my late mom's an architect. So, you know, you're, you're right. You're coming at a privileged middle class. Sort of. There was always a, a humility to that. So it's more like, uh, it's more like getting, getting to know the place. And I think things like what I remember is more the elements, because Nigeria... You know, the, the winter was the one thing that I just remember. Like, we were never ready. We were never ready. When I think about it, I think it was a, because, and a lot, I mean, because the country itself was on such a violent edge. I think there was just a lot of trying to understand what was going on. A, a lot of my memories are, are mixed in with this thing of, like, coming to a new place and trying to understand what everyone's trying to build. So at a level where people don't know where you're, you're like, you know, they don't know anything about 
Nigeria, they don't know anything about the history. So you're really dealing with people like, wow, you know what I mean? Like that, I remember that. And I remember a lot of sort of heated conversations trying to get people to understand that there was more than their backyard. One found oneself in the position of just like, you got to stand up to everything. I'd be like, hey, don't, that's not going to fly here. Because I'd been brought up in Nigeria, the confidence, I just had a confidence. I didn't have any, like nobody's told me, you know, I'm as good as anybody. So I'm not coming with any inferiority complex. You're not going to, there's nothing you can say to me that's going to bring me down. I'll, 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 I'll clap back. For most of us, we, did, we didn't have, you know, going to our parents and saying we didn't want to be a lawyer or a doctor <laughs> or an engineer. This was, this was not, a, it was not a conversation. I mean, even till now, many people, I mean, Eddie Cardi in an interview said to me, um, his dad said, oh, so you want to be a clown? <laughs> When he said once you become a comedian, you know, with your parents, like what was it about them that allowed you the freedom? And if I'm not mistaken, your sister was a writer. So what was it around your parents that actually supported this? What would be a crazy dream? And also for you, law versus drama school, it just seemed so obvious that drama school would have been the the most lucrative option yeah. for you. Absolutely. The thing was, you know, I always say you're absolutely right. I'm I'm so fortunate that I don't have I didn't have to navigate like most people I know. Like the story you say is so real. Most people just don't have the support, uh, unfortunately, because I think that, you know, the way in which art is packaged on our, on our continent is not packaged the same way. In other words, it's seen as jokes. It's not seen as a business. And I think that's also deliberate because you start to see it sometimes when you're trying to apply for funding for films, especially from foreign donors. There's certain films they're not funding. They're like, no, we're not going to give you money for this other thing, but we'll give you money for this sort of, you know, health awareness type of, so, so you start to see like there's a pattern in, in the thing, but thankfully art always just, you know, it, it, it takes over. So I, I, I still hope for the day when parents, um, African parents in particular can be more supportive of their children when they come and say, Hey, I want to pursue a career in the arts. So for me, my dad was a writer, my late mom, rest of soul was an architect. So they come from a creative space. So from the moment I was, I could comprehend anything. I've been going to bookshops, book fairs with my dad. He, obviously, his books are in this house, in the house, you know, growing up with Professor Wale Shoenka and those kind of people. So the fact that I didn't want to do it was probably a weird thing. And the, I mean, when I was younger, I used to write, like, I would try, try and write books. And, you know, I just never really had the patience for paper. There was never going to be an issue in terms of the support. And my parents just brought my brother, my sister, and I up in an environment that said you could be whoever you want to be. And so the path to law was because some, because I like to argue a lot. So the guardian guidance counselor at school said, well, you like to argue, so you should go study law. I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. The decision to become a filmmaker and go into drama school has everything to do with moving to South Africa. At the time I left Nigeria, these were not the things I was thinking of becoming. I wasn't thinking of becoming a filmmaker or an actor or anything like that. I liked all the stuff. In fact, if anything, I think I was trying to become a, a rap artist, but then I, I've got no musical, you know what I'm saying? Like, what's it, what's the talent? Like, I've got nothing <laughs> in terms of, in terms of being able to rap. Um, and then I realized very quickly that uh, it's okay to like the music. You don't have to become a star. <laughs> you don't have to, it's okay to just buy the music. <laughs> I realized very quickly that acting was fine. Like, I thought acting was cool. Like it was cool, but it didn't, it, it didn't really ignite my passion where storytelling did. And so to do that, it was like, okay, I could become a director. But in 1994, 
there are no film schools to speak of, right? In order to in order to become a filmmaker, like okay, you gotta you need a camera. So my parents, God bless, bought me this camera. And at the same time, UCT Drama School, they had uh, you had to film the, the the stage productions. So with a VHS camera. So I spoke to the guy, a gentleman called Paul, who who recently passed away. So rest rest in peace, Paul. And every time I saw Paul subsequently, I was like, Paul, I don't even know if you were allowed to do that. So Paul, I said to Paul, look, let me film the drama stuff. So, cause you just have to put the camera and film the stage, but then can I keep the camera over the weekends and stuff? And Paul said, that's fine. So I took the camera. In fact, the first place I took the camera was basketball practice and shooting us, you know, um, <laughs> dunking the basketball. So I say that to say like, so my journey into film, I was doing the drama course that my parents were paying for and I was running a parallel course which is learning and discovering about film. Am I correct to say that directing is more where you feel that you can have more of an impact in terms of when yes. it comes to storytelling? Yeah. Absolutely, because, you know, the director tells you where to look. Look here, look over here, look over there. The director, you know, and when you start to understand story and story manipulation and the stories that have been told about the continent and us, and you know what I mean? I want to be part of the people who are similar to what, um, my dad's generation did with the books or Wale Shoenka or Chino Achebe and all, you know what I mean? Like Gucci and Mechita, all these, all these, you know what I mean? Like in just, you want to be part of telling the story. As an actor, you're part of telling the story, but you can also, you know, you can be in things that you don't really, you're not 100% behind or whatever. Whereas as a filmmaker, you shape the story and the narrative a bit more, which I found much more useful, you know, much more powerful. And I really enjoyed it. I was watching an interview that you did and you mentioned about how you were really happy to be in the trenches. And if I'm not mistaken, Vaya, which was around um, homeless people in South Africa. And I just find it so interesting about how all your stories, as I was watching and going through everything, preparing, I'm like, there's such a thread. A kin loves to tell stories about people, about people who perhaps don't have a voice right up until what's happening with Rise. You've chosen the outlier story, so to speak, to tell, you know, there was an interview where you mentioned about how I think Rise took, I mean, Vaya took eight years to do. Yeah. You said that you were sitting at a dinner table or something like that. I could have gotten this whole thing botched up, but you you were and <laughs> and you you didn't want to be the person who wanted to who said you were going to one day make a film, you know, cuz we all are like that. You know, people are like, "Oh, I have this great idea one day, one day." You were quite yeah, happy yeah, to yeah. just get in it and do it. So now with yeah. Vaya, were there ever moments where you were in the middle of this because your projects took long. They were not, yeah. you were not doing these quick, like two second things where you yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. were like, okay, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep doing it. Like what was the biggest sacrifice you made? I think the, the one thing you said is it was very clear to me when, when I started, like you can talk about making films or you can go about doing them. Right. Uh, and you look at God is African. We did that in a time when the, none of these institutions that existed now, the department of trade and industry or the national film and video foundation they didn't exist at the time. We just went out. And shout out to that crew and the cast. We just went out and made the film. And so for me, it was important to say, hey, this is what I want. Like, give it a test. So let's go and let's have a proof of concept. I didn't want to ever be sitting around the table talking about films that I was never going to make. Because I always used to joke that the best film, like, and, I'm, and, and this is tongue firmly in cheek. The best filmmaker is the one who hasn't made a film. Because he or she can tell you about the perfect film they're going to make. That we're never going to see, Right. <laughs> the rest of us are, are in the trenches trying to, trying to make it work. So you, someone can sit at the table and say, yeah, when I make my film, the shots will be like this, the shots will be like, sounds great, make the film. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then, and then some people stop. So, and because I knew that the path was going to be long, 
I think that's where things like teaching came in. And I, it, for me, it wasn't about doing any film. It was about doing very specific things that I liked. I just want to be clear about the types of films that I want to do. And, and those things are hard. Those are hard choices and those are sacrifices. So you, you, yeah, you just, you know, you ride the wave as you go. I have to say, shout out to YFM. Because <laughs> indirectly, indirectly being the voice of that station kept me alive many, many months. <laughs> I remember you were the voice of the station. Was that was a good paycheck. <laughs> it was great. I, I, I got nothing but love for, for the folks that brought me the first time. Because, you know, I was the voice the first time. When, when, the stu- when the station launched, I was the voice. I was a student at UCT, and I recorded all the stuff. I, like, I'll never forget the day. They were like, hey, there's some station that's opening in Joburg. They need a voice. And I had done some voiceover at this guy's place. And he was like, your voice sounds great. I recorded all the stuff. So if you tuned into YFM, whenever YFM started in 1997, it was my voice you heard. That's why it's important to understand the craft. And I think things like directing commercials or doing music videos or, or whatever, you know, like just different things that allowed me to keep on practicing the craft while I waited for the moments for the projects that, that, were, that were meaningful. And yeah, the most thing is everybody tells, tells you no. So you, you hear a lot of no's and the, question, and, the, and the challenge is just to make sure the no's don't um, cripple you. That if, if anything, they, they, they reanimate you and they re-energize you. So that, that's always the thing. Like everybody tells you no. Hey, I'd love to make this film. Nah, we're not funding that. You know what I mean? So nothing is promised. So remember that. You remember it's like nothing is promised. So if you have that, you just know like it's going to be a grind. It's going to take a, a while. Let's just hopefully have good health and stay alive. And let's just keep grinding. Yeah. I guess it's also because you had that mindset, um, you know, you were ready for it. Because from what I understand in war, because I've never had to be in war, uh, most of it, you know, most of it is one in your mind. So if you go in with the long haul mindset, you're going to you're going to be OK. Yeah, exactly. You're right. It, it is that mindset. It's the marathon. You know, it's not the yeah. 100 being part of productions like Jacob's Cross, uh, Generations, Isidingo, Blood Diamonds, Queen of Katwe, all of that. So from yeah. going to creating Vaya and God is African and all of your own kind of productions where you knew that, look, this thing is going to be a hustle to being on set with people like Ava DuVernay um, during Queen of Katwe or being on Blood Diamonds. Like, how did that open your eyes into what was possible in the world of filmmaking? Because it must be different to work on a production where there's budget. Even with Rise, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, there's kind of budget yeah. versus when you're doing your own thing. It's like, please, today we're only drinking water. You know, <laughs> that's one too many yeah. lattes today. Yeah, 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 yeah. What is that transition like when you get onto your first kind of, um, let's say, international production? How did it open your mind to what was actually possible when it came to filmmaking as a whole? That's a great question. The good thing about it is that, like I said, you know, it's a marathon. So the person who is preparing for the marathon, they don't start. The marathon is on Saturday. They don't start running on Monday. They, you know, they start a year before. Like I said, I always just focused on the craft. So what do you need? so that you, 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 you have good habits, you know what I mean? So your habits stay the same. The way you prepare to make a movie evolves as you go along, right? So you, you start. So we always try to shoot above the budget. It didn't matter what it was. We always, we always try. You're giving me 10 cents, but I want to give you back a rand. But you build those habits so that by the time you get to a film like Rise, you're not shocked, you know what I mean? Like, I think that's important that because you've, you've just built the habits. What the opportunity that Rise does is that it, it expands the things you're already doing. So I, I always like to give the example of, I always like to rehearse. 
but we don't always have money to rehearse. When we did Man on Ground, we had a week rehearsal. When I did Tell Me See Something, we had four weeks rehearsal, which I had to find the money to make sure we did that. When we did Via, we had three days rehearsal. But the key thing is we always had rehearsal. When we did Rise, we had three months rehearsal. So the point I'm trying to make is that you build your habit. And the habit is, I want to rehearse, and I cut the cloth. You know what I mean? According to what, what I have. So that's what I'm saying. Like, you build the habit. You don't turn it on. And then as an actor, just being able to be on a set with Mira Nair on, on Queen of Catwick, or, or visit Ava's set when she was doing Now They See Us, or working with Andrew Nichol on Lord of War, it's like you get this opportunity to observe directors and how they do and what they do, especially on like Queen of Catway with Mira. I very rarely am I in my trailer. I'm by the director, you know what I mean? And, I, and normally I, I ask them beforehand, like, yo, do you mind if I, if I just hang around and just, you know, you won't notice I'm here. I'll just, you know, I'm just like, no shadow. And they're, and they're always very cool. And Miro's cool, like everyone's cool. And, and every now and again, I would ask a question, but I would ask it like outside, you know, like not, not disturb them. So I'll be in my wardrobe ready for my scene but I'll be watching what they're doing and just learning. You know, you just, you never stop learning. And, uh, and then visiting people's sets, like I had an opportunity to visit Ava's set and watch her, just see how she's doing things. And, and that's how, that's how, that, that, that's what acting has provided me, like a front row seat to some of these great directors and some of, and, and to see what I can learn from them. I want to know for you how much time you, uh, you know, working in Nigeria, like what that experience is like and just a juxtaposition, if possible, between South Africa, working in South Africa as a filmmaker and an actor versus working in Nigeria as a filmmaker as an, and an actor. Like, like I always say, every country is different. So filmmaking conditions are the same. You still got to wake up early in the morning. You still got to set up. You know what I mean? Like, so there's just a universal weather. And I've been fortunate. I've shot in the U.S. I've shot obviously in Athens, Lagos. Tanzania, you know what I'm saying? Like I've shot a lot of places. And so the bottom line is always the same. The, the work is always the same. I think each country just has different, you know, different ways of doing things. South Africa has its own sort of structures and Nigeria has a, a different, there's a structure, but it's a different type of structure. So I think as the filmmaker, it was always about trying to understand where you fit in. So I, I went, I left Nigeria in 1992. So I came back to Nigeria for the first time in 2008. And obviously, I always took inspiration from the industry. You must understand, the Nollywood phenomenon started in 1988 from a VHS tape. So to go from 1988 to where we are now just tells you the legacy of that. A film like God is African would not have been made if I didn't tap into that Nollywood spirit. They're, you know, they never say die. And this is like God is African. So I, we shot a promo for it first. So this is like 1999. And so... I already was feed, feeding off that energy of this industry built themselves up from the bootstraps. You know, you know what I mean? Nobody was giving them production finance. Production finance is something that's happening now in the last couple of years where you have things like the Bank of Industry and obviously we see the, the opening of doors with the rest of the streamers coming in. So we're talking about in 1999, there are people who are making movies without government support. So South Africa is very government supported, which is great, and rebates and stuff. So for me, I've already tapped into that energy. But from 2008, now I wanted to start to meet some of those players, the directors, the actors, the actresses, the producers, and so on. And that's kind of what I did. And, uh, you know, I did a documentary on Professor Wallace Schoenker, which we shot in Lagos and a few other places. I did a reality series in my father's home state. And, you know, I did a film called A Hotel Called Memory, which was partly shot in Lagos, and I did another film called *The Ghost in the House of Truth*, which which was which was shot in Lagos. *Ghost in the House of Truth* now streaming on BT Plus. Uh, <laughs> I say all that lead to say that I've 
100% work there and try to also, you know, do the thing, you know, try and tell the same kind of stories. And I love the energy of Lagos and I love the energy that, that it brings. And I think because South Africa has a rebate, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a thing that makes it an attractive destination. And I think it'll be at some point, you know, when, when Nigeria has a rebate or Lagos State has a rebate, I think you'll see more activity. But the thing with those directors that I admire, they're already doing those things. They're already shooting films in the Republic of Guinea. They're already doing... So in other words, we are the ones, and by, by we, I just mean when other lenses are looking. And that's what I love about about that industry is that they just get on with it. And I think that's pretty much how I feel. It's like, just get on with it. You don't, you don't wait for someone to come and say, hey, hey, is this thing, you know, you know, the you know, Nigerian filmmakers been shooting in Rwanda. They've been shooting in all these places. And, and I just admire that. I just admire that spirit. Let's talk a little bit about Rise because I've just watched it and it's a movie that I didn't know that I needed to watch. <laughs> there were so um, many incredible parts about this. But firstly, um, I just love it. There was a quote that you said. In the quote, you said, it's so rare that the thing you want to do is a thing that you get to do. And you haven't yes. stopped smiling since you got the job for Rise. Now coming into, you know, uh, getting the job as the director for Rise, I think the story is fantastic. So I would love if you can just reshare it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So um, as everyone's been listening on this call, you know, we've mentioned basketball a lot, uh, a little bit. So I'm, I'm just obsessed with basketball and obsessed with, you know, the stories of NBA players. And so, you know, Michael Jordan was my entry point into basketball. And, um, and then I was like, ah, are there any African players in the NBA? And then you start to see, oh, there's Hakeem Olajuwon, Dikembe Mutombo. And this is, you know, these guys around the time when I was starting to le learn the game, so late, the late 80s. And so... I just became obsessed with their stories because at that time, their path to the NBA was just like, you know, like these days, there's a, there's a bit of a clearer path. There's college, there's the G League, there's all these different things. Any, any African player that you saw, you just always like, how did he get here, right? And so because of that, every year, of the, every year with the NBA draft, I would always see who's being drafted. And when I saw Giannis, when Giannis was drafted, I was like, wow, if ever I make a basketball movie, this is the guy's story I'll tell because his story has very little, like at that point, he hasn't won the MVP. He hasn't been two time, you know, he hasn't been two time MVP, NBA champion, defensive player of the year, top 75 player of all time. I'm just responding to the story because in his story, I recognize my story. And I was just like, man, I would, I would love to, I would love to tell the story, but I didn't do anything about it. I just filed it in the back of my mind. And then obviously, because I follow the game and I follow him, I, I would, I'd see how, you know, like what he's doing and how he's doing. And I used to write a column for the website Africa as a Country. So I had my section, which is basketball as a country. So I even wrote a little thing about Giannis. I had a chance to meet him and I interviewed him, just telling him how amazing I thought he was. And this was like in 2015. So Giannis has always been in my life since, since I read his story. And so I bought a magazine. I was in Los Angeles and I bought a magazine, Sports Illustrated magazine, and Giannis is on the cover. So I, I was like, oh. I'm reading about Giannis, and then it says in there, Disney's making a movie about his life. I phoned my agent. I'm like, whatever you do, you've got to get me in that room. I don't know if I'll get the job, but you've got to get me in that room so I can tell them how I would make the story. And um, I kept the magazine by my bedside. I was like, I'm not taking this magazine away till I know they found another director for this project. And so every morning I'll look at the thing. Every night I'll look at the magazine. It took a year, and then they watched my film Via. And my agent phoned and said, okay, they've watched Via. They love it. Here's the script, read it. If you respond to it, you can meet them. So I read the script, I cried, and I was like, yo, get me in the room. And I, so I walked into that room, Lee. I had nothing to lose, I had everything to gain. 
and I just spoke to them from the heart that if you give me this job, this is how I'll tell the story. It took seven weeks, but um, after seven weeks, the night that Giannis won his second MVP was the night I got the job. And then a year later, when we shot the film, we wrapped on the Monday. They won the championship on the Tuesday. And a few weeks ago, when, we were, when the film was launching, uh, Giannis signed the magazine for that's what I love yeah. about your life story. Everything is just like always a full circle moment. You know, things just tend to stitch themselves into what it is that it's meant to be. Yes. There were so many things that stood out about the story, um, about Giannis' yes. story and his family story. The one thing that really gripped me was just seeing the family on the side selling things as, um, you know, the mom being a vendor and her selling mm-hmm. things. And mm-hmm. the father, mm-hmm. you know, the, the part in the movie where the dad spoke about how he was a janitor and they said that's not a real mm-hmm. job. I honestly was checking my privilege in a way that I had never even thought about, you know. Mm-hmm. And I feel mm-hmm. that what it was, it's like I, I saw that and then I thought of your other work and I thought, wow, Akin really enjoys telling stories with these kind of people that maybe society may have counted out, but here they are, they rise all the time. Sorry, that was not intentional. Right. What was the, the standout feature of the story? Why, why did you think it was an important story to tell? I always maintain that, that that's just, it's, just sort of, it's just such a great story. We all respond to it. It's like, like when you think about it, like, hold on, you're telling me and this gentleman who has just been drafted into the NBA, Five years or a couple of years ago, he hadn't picked up a basketball. And wait, he did what? They were not documented. And they, he did what? He sold CDs on the sidewalk? Are you kidding me? Like, what an inspirational story. What a story that just talks about perseverance. And so that's what I latched into. And then the, the way in which the family is so generous and they stick together as a family. So that idea of like, we're not trying to pull each other down. We're trying to let's be together. And I think as a basketball player, what I like about our industry is that when you can have a team, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in the team. So I love team basketball, you know? And so this idea of like this family just staying together through it all. And um, it just moves me all the time. I spoke to like, you know, like my grandparents. My grandparents were West Indian immigrants to London. And when we went to their house in London, it was a three-bedroom house, upstairs, downstairs, full of laughter, full of music, just massive. You know what I mean? Just like a beautiful, beautiful environment. Years later, it's like, oh, you know, your, your granddad worked as a security guard and your grandmother worked as a cook. Your image of what that is like, what, that, what those circumstances, what those people, should, quote unquote, those people should be. You know what I mean? What, what's the thing? It's the life. It's the story. It's the essence of family. And I just tapped into that in a major way because that's also how they, they live their life. You know, they're authentic. You know, Giannis is an executive producer on the film and, um, you know, and, and obviously want to make sure the story is authentic because he's authentic. And whenever we had those meetings discussing the script, it was always him, his mom and his brothers. You tap into that energy. And I, and I really wanted to make sure the audience felt that. You could definitely feel it. And I think that that's what made the story so universal, even outside of the sporting industry and, and all of that. And even if you're, you're not African, like that's what made the story universal. Because at the end of the day, there's this thing that is put on how you're defined based on the passport that you hold or you don't hold yeah, based yeah. on mm, the kind of mm. job that you have versus the job that you don't have. And I think that this film pulls the people's heartstrings from that perspective. No matter where it is that you sit in life, you just, you never really know, you know. I actually interviewed uh, Jocelyn Muhuti Remy from Spotify, mm. the MD for Spotify. Mm-hmm. And she, mm-hmm. at the beginning of the interview, suddenly mentioned, and I, had, I didn't know this, so I was shocked. She just mentioned about how her mom had been a refugee from Rwanda to Ethiopia. And I thought, what? Mm. 
I couldn't even imagine mm. that. And she built herself up in the OAU and, and all of that, you know. So it's really just this thing that sometimes people that you think perhaps, you know, unfortunately, the way the world sees certain people, they're the ones who make the greatest change. They're the ones who make the greatest change, the greatest impact. And they almost are, are driven to excel beyond anybody else because they have so much to prove and nothing to lose. Absolutely. And and just and if you know Giannis and just like his journey, man, and how he just continues to just redefine the game, the game of basketball, but also just the game of life. And so I, I was all in on that on that story. And that's why I said like, all the films, everything is led, everything leads up to the moment, but it's like, it it, it, it it so happened that Disney was making a movie, but if someone else was making a movie, I will still have put my hand up and say, hey, please, I need you to consider me for this film because I, I, I have to tell the story, you know, and, and thankfully, thankfully, they, they, they agreed. Now, Akin, if I don't ask these questions, now I've got to ask you the hard questions, and I, you might be, you might say hard pass, but here we go. You know, a lot of times, like, now when people are looking at, when it comes to the casting, how involved were you in the casting process of that? And then secondly, behind the scenes, are we seeing a lot more um, African people being involved in big productions like this? I was involved in, uh, yeah, I was involved in the casting. Yeah, 100%. Because uh, working with a great casting director, Randy Hiller and Michael Moriani, got to give them a shout out. And, uh, and, and Bernie, the producer, and I, we had very clear ideas of what we wanted. So the first thing I, I knew off the bat was that whoever is playing Giannis is going to be a new, is somebody who is new. So we're, we're looking for a new person. I wanted the person to be able to play basketball. And because of the way in which I approach casting, which is I'm looking for actors with emotional intelligence, I feel like I can, or with the team, we can get the performances that we, that we would need. Because as an actor, I know the type of performances I like. And as a director, I know the type of performances I'm looking for. And the way it worked was Giannis sent out a tweet and he said, hey, Disney's making a movie about my life and we're looking for people to play me and my brothers, sending your tapes. So we received a ton of tapes from across the world. And so we went through, we went through 400 tapes and then, we, and then we found Uche. And then when we cast Uche, we asked him, do you, we were still trying to cast an assist, do you have a brother? He said, oh, I do have a brother. I was like, okay, cool, let's, in, let's audition your brother. We auditioned his brother. His brother is great. So we cast his brother as an assist. It's the stuff that no one sees. We went through 400 tapes watching and trying to find and callbacks and this and that. That's the job of casting. Because Uche was working at the equivalent of, I mean, I can only use South Africa. You know, Macro is like a wholesale store. Uche was working at the equivalent of that here in the, in the, U, in the, in the U.S. You know, that's what he was doing. When, and he, because people told him, oh, you look like Giannis and so on. So he took a chase like he saw the tweet. He thought, you know, he never acted before, but he was always interested in acting. And he put himself forward. And Uche... And Raul, it's their first film. But they, they, they worked hard. Those three months, of, you know, they worked. They, they did the things, you know. You know, that's really the process. You, you go through an audition process to find the right people. But I'm always looking for that emotional intelligence. And everyone in the film had that. I mean, I didn't know that about the casting process. And I think it, it really speaks to why the characters were so authentic. Because even Uche... The fact that he was basically working at a, the equivalent of a macro or whatever kind of store around the world packing things and now he's playing this role it's just so it would make sense that he could tap into the emotion um you know exactly. of the emotion and the family's emotion obviously he would have been you know coming from an immigrant family so i think that that is you know it, it really just shows about how when there's intentionality you're going to get what you want out of the project and you yeah. guys definitely got what you wanted and then yeah exactly and then in terms of behind the scenes we've got a lot of of um, you know cabello and i have worked together on many films and 
Yanni and I have worked together on many films. The costume designer, Mogolaji Gauju, you know, he'd worked on Andrew Dosimu's films, he'd worked on Mira Nye's films. I was a big fan of his. Ina Mayhew, who was the production designer, she'd worked on Ava's stuff, she'd worked on Spike's stuff. For me, it's just about who are the right people to bring this together and, and as you say, you can be intentional in how you go about it. So I can't speak for I can't speak for other people. I can only speak for my own intentionality and having the support of a studio who understood all those things and were very supportive. And they got, you know, there was no, you know, like Cabello, uh, it's his first studio film. It's Vianney's first studio film. Yeah, it's my first studio film. And so we, you know, we keep on keeping on, you know? <laughs> and now, Akin, just as we round up, thank you, you've been so generous with your time. Always, Lee. I always ask this to my guests because I really love the power of the creative industry in Africa and the power of entrepreneurship to change and to bring different stories and hope and and change people's lives within the continent mm-hmm. for you in the filmmaking mm-hmm. uh you know in in the filmmaking world i i heard a quote a country without a film industry is like a family without a photo album you know mm-hmm. if you had to make an investment case as to why from like the private sector and even in terms of education systems across the continent why investing in the film sector is so important for the future generations of Africa, what would it be? I think that quote you gave is a good example. I just think like, fortunately, people have to understand the value of the arts. And it comes back to stories. What stories are we preserving? So you can go to Milan and they've preserved the Last Supper that was painted a long time ago. Everybody comes and gathers and everybody understands like this thing is gold, right? So people who have funds of the corporation need to understand like every society needs the story. If you're not funding the arts, you're cutting off the story because you can buy as many benzes as you like. Nobody's here for that. And that's the truth of it. And I, and I think it's just that. It's like, where do we place our value? You pour so much money into sports and then there's a fraction into the arts. You've got to find a balance. Pre-COVID, there was a conversation around distribution and around where African films could be distributed, you know, physically. What do you think that the streaming giants coming into the continent and investing into stories in the continent, what's the greatest change that it's made? Well, I would say the thing is, you know, I'm I'm also a believer in you've got to acknowledge the continuum. What the streamers now do is that you can blast that continuum to many more places in the world. So you might never have heard of, let's say, yeah, take any of these to take any of these films. So, so and so is a superstar back in Lagos and the diaspora. Now, somebody over there in Australia can say, oh, We didn't, you know what I'm saying? So, because of that, you've just blasted the content of the world. It's not that narrative was not happening before you arrived, you've also joined and now blasted it out even to the furthest corners of the world. And I think that's a beautiful thing about that intervention is that, is that more people can see the work because for a long time, for a long time, you would go to film festivals and all these films disappear and all these projects disappear. Now, those projects can live on and, um, and the continuum, you know, it's a continuum, it just continues, but yeah, it goes on. It goes on. It goes on and on. Second last question. When we interviewed Chef Coco, he spoke about how in different culinary schools, you're not really, people are not being taught about African cuisine necessarily, you know, you're being taught how to make sushi. (laughs) You know, when it comes to film, is it the same thing? Are we, from what you know and from people that you know within the Pan-African film industry, what are people saying about what is being taught in schools and not taught in schools in terms of African film and stories and, and just textures that are true to us as a people? Again, it depends on where you are, but I think that Things are being taught, you know, with film, it's always there's the craft and then there's also the history. 
So, so whenever I teach, I'm teaching the craft and I'm teaching the history. I need you to watch some of these films. To answer your question, I get requests all the time for like, please, can you send us our film because we're teaching this class here. And it's not just on the continent. I get asked that outside. So there's an awareness of how to teach and how to program it and all those kind of things. But uh, but yeah, so I would say, uh, I mean, I know what they're talking about when they're not being taught to make sushi and stuff. I think that um, the medium is forever evolving. So how do you stay on top of how we tell a story? Because the way in which we told the stories years ago is not the way in which people are consuming the content today. You know, I always say before, if you wanted to laugh, you would have to, you know, go find the film. Like if I want to laugh now, I just have to go on the internet. You know what I'm saying? Like it's so quick. And so where does the creative find themselves in that space? I mean, there's always room for stories and so on. So I would say, I would say that in my experience, there's a, they, you know, whoever is teaching the courses or the thing or whatever, there's always a sense of African cinema, and at least the universities I've interacted with, I've always tried to bring, you know, current practitioners so that again, it, it doesn't feel like those films are stuck in a museum, but that there's a continual dialogue that's happening constantly. Akin, what next for you? I mean, are you working on anything at the moment? What are the next kind of steps, or what, what story would you ideally want to tell? A lot of things I still want to do. I think the thing is. We've, we've sort of navigated this, pan, you know, navigating this, the pandemic and just having come out of Rise, taking a moment, you know, just take it all in. For the, for the, for the first time, I take, I'm taking a moment in a long time. But there's stuff, there's stuff coming, you know. But for now, it's just like really, really taking it in, like I said to you, to go from, hey, this is a story I'd love to tell. And seven years later, I get to tell that story it's pretty remarkable. And then just, you know, being in Los Angeles for the premiere and like I've landed in Los Angeles many times and to land in Los Angeles and drive around and see these massive rides posters. I don't think we celebrate enough and we don't take the time to say, hey, well done. <laughs> and so that's the moment you find me in, which is just uh, thanking the higher powers and acknowledging the journey so far. Fantastic. It's Kin Omotoso. So glad that I got to have this conversation with you, honestly speaking. And yeah, I, I actually like the idea that you're taking a moment. I mean, I love the way that you circumvented. You're like, I'm not saying nothing. Wait until the next thing comes up. That was very good. Because you know, if I wanted, I'll drag it out of you. But I, I'm going to be re respectful. I'm going to be respectful. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Africa Whisperer. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed having this conversation with my esteemed guest. Please, if you want to find out anything more about the podcast, go to theafricawhisperer.com where you can find out about the team that helps put this production together, my amazing guests that we have each and every week, as well as send any feedback that you might have by emailing hello at theafricawhisperer.com. Also, remember to follow Follow me on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter as Lee Kasumba. Catch you next time. Thanks.